Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Welcome to LawPod. Uh, my name is Mark Hanna. I'm a lecturer here at the School of Law. I lecture in legal theory, torts and approaches to legal research. In this episode, I'm talking to Hans Lindahl. Hans is a professor of legal philosophy at Tilburg University in the Netherlands and professor of global law at Queen Mary University of London. Hans has published widely in the fields of political and legal philosophy, in particular in relation to law in global society, that most complex but ever important form of law, law that transcends the boundaries of independent nation states. Hans has published Two key monographs in this area, Fault Lines of Globalization, Legal Order and the Politics of Illegality, published with Oxford University Press in 2013, and Authority and the Globalization of Inclusion and Exclusion, published with Cambridge University Press in 2018. In this interview, we talk about legal theory and what its place is in legal education today, both on the continent and in the UK. We also talk about boundaries, which has been so central to Professor Lindahl's work and his concept of law. We talk about them here in the context of Northern Ireland, where historically they've been so important uh, and where they continue to be so prevalent and determinative with Brexit. And we also talk about illegality, another key concept of Professor Lindahl's uh, and the, what he calls the calling into question of law. And we discuss in that context a range of social movements, uh, both historical and current, from Aboriginal tent embassies that started in the 1970s to uh, Greta Thunberg uh, and the current school strike for climate change. So we talk about uh, this and and many more things, and I really enjoyed uh, talking to Hans, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here it is. So Hans, uh, as I understand, you're from Colombia, and you were a lawyer in Colombia before you went into academia, is that correct? Yeah, sure, that, that, that's correct. Um, I, I was born in Colombia. My, my grandparents are Swedes, Swedish immigrants to Colombia in the 20s when Sweden was a very poor country. And so I'm a second generation Colombian. Um, I was sort of educated uh, bilingually in English and in Spanish, not in Swedish. Um, my parents tried teaching me Swedish, Spanish and English simultaneously with code switching. So apparently I began to stutter. So they cut out the, the Swedish and kept to English and Spanish, which was probably a good choice. Um, and so I studied at an American school in, in Cali, where I was born, um, and had Spanish, of course, as my, as my second mother tongue. Uh, and uh, then I went to Bogota to, to study law, where I took a degree. It's a five-year stint. And um, then I decided after some time to, uh, well, I, I went into legal practice. I was first uh, a junior lawyer in a large uh, advocacy and uh, solicitor uh, office for, um, for international banks. So I was a banking lawyer, in fact. Uh, then I became uh, uh, in-house counsel for the Philips multinational in Colombia. So I was head of a, of a legal the, department. The yeah. Dutch connection? Yeah, exactly. No, 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 not at all. Oh. Not at all. I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, and after some five years of legal practice, um, I thought I'd retreat as quickly as possible into the ivory tower and <laughs> leave reality behind. <laughs> and uh, I thought I'd take a, a, a doctorate in philosophy, which is what I'd always wanted to do. 
um, in Louvain in Belgium and then return and be a bonus pater familia. And uh, I'm not a bonus pater familia. <laughs> I fell in love with, with philosophy and stayed in, in uh, Europe. Uh, when I finished my doctorate, which had nothing to do with, uh, with law, it was in, into the metaphysics of modernity as understood by Heidegger, uh, then I was offered a postdoc position in, uh, in Tilburg. And uh, then a very fortunate thing happened, which is that someone died. And I say it's fortunate <laughs> because it turned out to be the, it was an assistant professor whose grandmother um, was, a very, was a very rich widow. And uh, she died. And so when she, when she died, if I may have a riff on Oscar Wilde, his hair tur turned gold in grief. <laughs> and so he promptly resigned. And I was offered the assistant professorship. And so I've stayed in, uh, in Tilburg ever since. Uh, I did have possibilities of coming to work in, in the UK, but these actually only materialized when I got my position uh, a couple of years back at Queen Mary's. It's a fractal chair in global law. So that's that's a bit of my background. I do have a Dutch accent indeed. Um, I guess it's inevitable if you've lived in the country for some 30 years. Um, I noticed a difference in terms of my language uh, in the sense of uh, prepositions. I think that's where language is most vulnerable to to uh, to change. But otherwise, I'm, I'm still comfortable in, in English. So when you uh, came to Tilburg, you came as a philosopher? Yeah, well, yeah, and I, but I, I was offered a position uh, in legal philosophy, but uh, in our university, it was one of the very few cases in Europe, as far as I know, legal philosophy was in a philosophy department. Mm. And so uh, that gave me a certain distance from law, which I think is very helpful, uh, allowed me to really think philosophically about, about the law, but at the same time really to engage with lawyers. So in, in some ways, I think it was the best of all possible worlds. After a certain point in time, we descended, as philosophy departments generally do, into a state of civil war. <laughs> and then uh, Hobbes would have certainly written Leviathan in, uh, in Tilburg, life is nasty, brutish, and short. So I seceded, as it were, with my group to the, to the law school, which has been a very nice experience, and I'm very happy to work there. And we talked before about the Netherlands and law schools in the Netherlands and not being typically very interested in theoretical approaches. Do you think that that kind of evolution of the law school in Tilburg had something to do with, with its more, you know, I mean, of the Dutch universities has a more kind of theoretical approach yeah. to law? Well, I think part of it has to do with the background of Tilburg University. It used to be a Catholic university, and there is still a, a, a Catholic um, background, as it were, but where that, the, the, the Catholicity of the university is simply translated into two large courses in philosophy, which are taken by uh, all bachelor programs. Uh, when I say large courses, I mean six ECTS. So that's that's a pretty hefty amount of philosophy. I've never experienced any kind of religious pressure in terms of what I should be teaching. Uh, so in that sense, the the, uh, the religiosity of the of the university simply translates into a into a reflective stance with respect to whatever discipline you're studying. Um, and so that has made it into a quite uh, uh, theory friendly university, and in particular in law which tends to be so intensely pragmatic, it has made for a, a, a very accommodating and, and, and congenial uh, atmosphere for me to do my work. So I have never encountered a sense of, well, what you're doing is serious and so far removed from what, what, what interests us. So yes, I've, I've been very happy to work there. I think that some universities in, in the Netherlands are less theory friendly. 
but in general, I think that we still have the advantage that uh, legal philosophy is recognized as a distinct discipline. If you compare that to Germany, for example, in Germany, there are barely any full professors with the sole discipline of legal philosophy. So you would have typically a professor in constitutional law and legal philosophy, private law and philosophy, whereas in the Netherlands we still have the tradition of having um, legal philosophy chairs. So that's been very nice. But I think that there are different accents between different universities in terms of the importance that they attach to legal philosophy, and Tilburg is... Uh, is in that sense for me an exceptionally friendly place. Yeah, and and so you're chair of legal philosophy at Tilburg, and you're also chair of global law then at Queen Mary. That's right. And so how does that compare then? And you're you know that's in the English system, and then in yeah. the Dutch system. Well, I'm, I'm actually, as it turns out, I'll be uh, offering my first module in the legal theory LLM at uh, Queen Mary now in March. Of course, we have a strike, and I'll be striking as well. So I have uh, of the five lectures, I'll be only offering three of them. Um, but so I, it'll be interesting to, for me to see what, what where are the differences. Um, I think one of the differences may have to do with the fact that uh, in the Netherlands, certainly for Dutch students, uh, studying at a university is still very cheap. I think it's about a 1,500 euros, mm. whereas in the UK, it's a lot more expensive. Now, that has advantages and disadvantages. In the case of the UK, maybe it makes students into more consumer-oriented uh, persons. But on the other hand, they're more demanding. Mm. Whereas in the Netherlands, basically, as long as you're as long as you're not too tough on students, then they're actually quite tolerant about about how well uh, uh, lecturers yeah. do their work. Um, but having said that, I I, I enjoy working in the Netherlands, and I've, what I've seen from from uh, the atmosphere in Queen Mary, it looks also like a, a great place to work. So yeah, I I wanted to ask actually because I did have a question about legal theory and your thoughts on legal theory and the state of legal theory and. In uh, academia, uh, do, how do you perceive the evolution of legal theory, jurisprudence as a subject? Because you know, here it used to be compulsory module for all undergraduate students. It's now an optional module, and I think that that's some general reflection, you know, of of the trend in the UK. Uh, move towards more practice orientated uh, and less away. And I find the students also, you know, when they come onto the theory module, that they're, it's a a very different style of looking at law. And it's not learning the code and learning the rules sort of thing, you know, but it's more like that you have to come with a critical mindset and, and, you know, analyze things. And and there's no, there's no clear answers, which I think a lot of students feel somewhat uncomfortable with. Um, and I'm just wondering, do you also perceive like that this is part of a general trend? I think it is. Um, I think it's part of a, a general trend to de-universalize or de-universitate, if I could introduce this horrible neologism, universities. I think universities have tra- traditionally been places for critical thinking in a wide sense of critique. And it seems to me that with, uh, with the marketization of university education, there is an intense pragmatism involved in moving us towards a more practice-oriented understanding of what law is about. And I think that that's a, that, that's a, that is a, a, a huge loss, not merely for myself as a, because I'm a legal theorist, but simply because I do think that these are times that demand critical thinking more than ever, actually. And so that I think that that is a, that is a, a, a significant loss. I, I, I see it also, I, in Tilburg, I also teach a course in the master's program of philosophy, 
And one of the things that I find very interesting is that just a huge difference between master students or students in philosophy as compared to students in, in a law school. Philosophy students do tend to be a lot more um, uh, reflective in their thinking. And it's not like you study philosophy to make to become rich. So that these are people that would typically be much more amenable to a reflective stance on law than what law students tend, tend to be. But having said that, um, I've come across brilliant law students that were incredibly sharp in their critique of society and precisely because they got into the nitty gritty of, of what the actual legal practice is about. Mm -hmm. In that sense, they have an advantage over philosophers. Philosophers tend to be quite abstract in their thinking, whereas lawyers certainly in this part of the world, of course, with precedent, tend to be people that can reflect on more general issues beginning from very concrete issues. So in that sense, um, even if we have that general trend towards a more pragmatic, instrumental approach to law and less reflexive and critical, I still see more than enough youngsters out there who are engaging in real critical thinking beginning from the practice of law. So in that sense, I'm not hopeless. Where I think that things are becoming incredibly difficult is for someone who would want to begin a career as a, as a legal theorist or as, a, as an academic. Increasingly, I think that taking a doctorate, whether in legal philosophy or even in many other areas of law, is an act of hope because the possibilities of, of having a career and the kinds of possibilities which are offered by academia today are becoming so closed down in terms of marketization that it's really difficult to envisage people wanting to dedicate a life to reflection under those conditions. Yeah, but I, and what I find, you know, because I teach legal theory here as well, is that, you know, students come on it and it's it's such a strange animal, you know, in, in the spectrum of the different types of, you know, doctrinal law courses mm. that when they first come on that it's they're slightly uncomfortable. But you do actually see some students doing really well in that subject once they kind of change their mindset to more kind of critical exogenous sort of uh, mindset. And. Uh, they thrive at it. And I think you're right that, that compared to philosophy, law at least uh, offers this more applied framework. And I think that it's that kind of theoretical approach is so germane to what it is to practice law. I mean, I think that people that go to court and argue cases have to be theoretical, you know, and they have to engage in that kind of... You can't do that by rote learning. The law is about interpretation of the rule and, and spinning it certain ways. And you need to make theoretical constructions for that, you know. Yeah. So it always kind of surprised me in that way. And I think you're right, you know, it's it's a loss if if it does get marginalized. Yeah, I, I agree. One of the things I, I, I tell my, my students in the law course um, is um, the very first uh, week I tell them, you know, you guys are theorists. And their eyes turn a bit glassy because I say, you know, you cannot be a legal, you cannot engage with legal doctrine without in fact theorizing about the law. So that whether you want to or not, you are engaging with philosophical questions. And what I've discovered is that um, lawyers are wonderful philosophers as long as they engage with the law. They become wretchedly bad philosophers when they begin to quote Hobbes and Rousseau and Kant and Hegel and whoever, simply because they would use, usually use these quotes as authoritative quotes <laughs> to, to, uh, uh, to subtend an argument. Uh, and they probably don't understand Hobbes or Kant or whoever very well. But as long as lawyers are focusing on the law and thinking through the foundational issues of the law, then they're incredibly good yeah. philosophers. And in my sense of it has always been that uh, practice is always more radical than theory. 
that theory is always trying to catch up actually with with the practice of things. Yeah. And in that sense, to the extent that lawyers are out there on the front lines, makes them often a lot more radical in their philosophical thinking than philosophical thinking itself. Mm. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Uh, that practice is more radical in theory. Just to to branch out, out, out into something else about methodology. Do you think, therefore, that if you're having a theoretical approach to law, that you need to have an empirical side to that and to be really, you know, have a grounded sort of theory in that sort of yeah. sense? Thanks. Thanks. That's a really good question. My approach to, uh, to legal philosophy, uh, and certainly in the way I do it in my lectures, is to really begin very with a very concrete uh, legal problem the way that it's articulated by lawyers uh, and to, as it were, to lull the students into a sense of, of, of comfort that this is what they already know about it, about the topic, and then to begin to sort of peel away the layers such that suddenly there a sort of philosophical problem which is not presented philosophically uh, within the legal doctrine, but the legal doctrine is wrestling with, you suddenly see what is the what is the philosophical uh, purport of of the issue, and at that moment, then I go into philosophy. I do my ver level best never to refer to a philosopher. I I will use the concepts, but I will not refer to Plato. I will not refer to Aristotle. I will try to stay within the language of the law, but to deal with it philosophically. Mm -hmm. And then, after I've developed a philosophical framework to think about that legal problem, then I will return to the legal problem to try to show how philosophy can help to understand it. So it's a kind of circular methodology. You begin with the law, you show how the law itself cannot really deal with problems only on its own without engaging philosophically, even if it doesn't call it that, right, with an yeah. issue. Show what would be a conceptual framework that helps you to make sense of that philosophically, and then go back to show how the law, to clear away pseudo-problems, and to show how the legal practice can actually carry us forward, even philosophically, in a way that a philosopher perhaps wouldn't be able to do. That's great. So it's kind of like a magic pill or a spoonful of sugar. So at the end, that you suddenly say, actually, what you've been dealing with is these kind of really abstract theoretical yeah. notions that have been worked yeah. out over years. So, well, if I can give you a concrete example, the very first uh, lecture that I offer in my large course in philosophy, legal philosophy in, in Tilburg, I begin it with a rather rhetorical and bombastic statement by saying, well, I'm going to spend 12 lectures just discussing one word. And that I've been uh, spending, the, I've spent the last uh, 20 years on that one word, and then I expect I'll still need another two incarnations before I finish with that one word. And that one word is we. So what wow. do we mean when we say we Brits, we Americans, or whoever? And then I show how that problem actually is at the core of the kinds of crises that Europe is facing at this point. Mm -hmm. Can we say we Europeans? <clears throat> what does it mean to speak of identity difference? Uh, the autonomy of European law. So in this way, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to engage philosophically with, with the law, but in a way that is accessible to students. Yeah. Yeah, I, actually, that was one of the things I, I wanted to ask you about, is this we ourselves um, aspect. It, it's been really important in your work. Um, but I, I want to ask a few questions about other aspects of, of your of your work. And one of the things was, I mean, your work has been so much about boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, you know, uh, what your experience is or, you know, your reflection from that perspective is of Northern Ireland. Probably you haven't thought a lot about Northern Ireland before, but I mean, boundaries is such yeah. an important thing yeah. here. And it's been yeah. such a contentious yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, how would that translate then into your framework, you know, perspective? Yeah. yeah. Well, 
first something why why boundaries interest me. I, mean, I think I think that w- when we speak about the law, um, we tend to think about rules, and uh, whether it's in the form of precedent, whether it's in the form of statutes, whether it's a form of administrative decisions, whether it's in the form of standard contracts or whatever, we are still very much within the uh, enthrall of the positivist understanding of law, where the pedigree of norms is what defines the validity of a legal system. And of course, that's only half of the story. The other half of the story is that from the perspective of individuals who are under the law, what the law does is provide us, um, what a legal norm is about or rule is defining who ought to do what, where, and when, which means basically that law orders by setting boundaries to behavior, spatial boundaries, temporal boundaries, subjective boundaries, and material boundaries. So that uh, by, by introducing this dimension of, of boundaries, I think you open up an, an, an analysis that is a lot more concrete of the, of, of the effectiveness in the sense of kind, what kinds of effects the law has on, on the individuals that it subjects to its, uh, to its ages. And so um, that's, that's what, what interests me in terms of the problem of, 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 uh, of boundaries. Now, as concerns the case of, um, of Northern Ireland, indeed, I've, I've, I've uh, following at some remove now, certainly with the whole Brexit debate and, the, and squaring the circle with trying to keep Northern Ireland inside, but also outside uh, the, the EU and stuff. Um, my, my sense of it is that what we see happening here is a process of, um, of a collective trying to, to identify itself. And at the same time, in the, in the very process of identifying itself, also differentiating itself with respect to itself in such a way that any clear distinction between the own and the strange, what is our own as Northern Ireland individuals, uh, inevitably becomes, as it were, contaminated with dimensions of what, is, what we take to be strange. And in such a way that uh, I guess it's inevitable that you have to refer to a we when speaking about Northern Ireland but that in a certain sense, like for all collectors, but in a particularly acute way in, in, in Northern Ireland, you can never really complete the reference to a, to, a, to a we. And so the politics of identity and difference which is played out in, in Northern Ireland is also a politics of boundaries that plays out within the city of Belfast itself, yeah. in fact, and which plays itself out also in terms of the boundary between uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Yeah. So yesterday in the, in, the, in the conference that we had, there was this great question about, well, to what an extent uh, is it possible to think that the troubles in Northern Ireland are in a way an, a, a shared identity between unionists and nationalists, between Protestants and Catholics. And what's fascinating about that question is that it's actually very close to the kinds of questions that we've been asking in Colombia, which has been going through basically a sort of low-intensity civil war for now, for something like 60 years. We've lost about a half million people to the, to the war. And there the acute question is, um, how can we say we politically in a way that could command loyalty from parties that have been literally at war with each other. Under what conditions could we imagine ourselves as sharing a collective future? Because it's not merely, a, it, there, can no, there can be no collective future without a reference to a shared past. 
But what kinds of shared past could we have as nationalists and unionists, given the war? And would it be possible to imagine that the troubles itself are something that we share and that contains the seeds for a possible understanding of what is to have a commonality into the future? And that pans out, therefore, into questions also about boundaries. How do we want to understand the boundaries that we're drawing between Northern Ireland and uh, the Republic of Ireland? Um, how do we understand our relationship to, to the EU? How do I understand our own relationships within a place like Belfast? So these are the, this would be the way I think that I would want to approach these kinds of issues, but knowing too little about the concreteness of the Northern Ireland situation to be able to at this point say very much uh, yeah. that, that's actually meaningful. But it, it's interesting, you know, in the sense that setting of boundaries is, is really determinative of maybe peace and, and the prosperity of a place in a sense. And it's, it's hard to get the sense of, you know, it seems that if, if boundaries are set within... Uh, something that's already a bounded kind mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. nomus or area sort mm -hmm. of thing, then that that's problematic. One of the things that struck me, I'm from Northern Ireland, grew up here, you know, and it's part of the old world in a sense. But uh, one of the things that struck me when I first went to New York City was this thing that you, you get into a city and you can look right down the avenues and you see the people crossing at each block, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And what immediately struck me was, wow, that's... This city really sees itself, you know, yeah. we ourselves t together sort of thing. And that yeah. kind of reflexivity gives New Yorkers such a solid identity, you know, and they're homogeneous in that sense, you yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, you know, there's when you can. And I think America is great at that, actually, yeah. in some ways. I yeah. mean, I know it's deeply divided now. Yeah. But they are able to set up uh, certain s spaces where it's like that they have a really, you know, uh, strong identity. Yeah. Whereas Northern Ireland, there seems to be that they, they struggle to, to have that kind of social reflexivity and be able to talk about yeah. we ourselves because yeah. it's always about the other side of a, yeah. Yeah. Of a, yeah. of a boundary sort of yeah. thing, you know, yeah. and it's yeah. defined in that sense. Yeah. And I think, you know, when with Brexit and what we discussed yesterday is, you know, that that's becoming now, it's about we in terms of, you know, our uh, alliance with the United Kingdom or with the Republic of Ireland. But what's interesting is that that's maybe disappearing a little bit. And, yeah. and the, the other side of the boundary is, yeah, I'm not sure if yeah. it's, it's so definitive anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that you're pointing to, to, a, to a very peculiar dynamic of, of boundaries. We tend to think of boundaries as including us and excluding the other. So we define ourselves by boundaries that demarcate who we are vis-a-vis -vis the other. And of course, boundaries do include and exclude, but boundaries are always unstable. Uh, there is no boundary that, that, that can ever be totally fixed. And if nothing else, because strictly speaking, there aren't boundaries. What there is is always a bounding process. Um, very, very simply, um, to the extent that you had Syrian uh, refugees reaching Europe, in large numbers, um, the very process of crossing the, bound, the, the borders, the external borders of Europe um, in large numbers meant that the, that, that very process, of that, that, there, that the boundary, as it were, was only a boundary to the extent that you managed to hold them back. But at the same time, the boundary was what made possible the crossing over. So in a sense, what boundaries do is, is not merely include and exclude, they, they join and they separate. And therefore, what this means is that you will have 
uh, on the one hand, you will have the possibility of a boundary that is only uh, in a position to separate, which is a limiting situation. Because if it were only a, if you only if a boundary only separated, then you would have no sense of there being a beyond. So you wouldn't even recognize it as a boundary. But on the other hand, if the boundary is no longer a boundary and simply uh, allows for crossing over, then it's no longer a boundary either. There's, no, there's not another side, which means that boundaries will always move between two different positions, being fully closed or fully open. And what that means is that in the case of, the, of New York, you will have boundaries, of course, uh, but that they seem to be more porous and they allow for more movement, more passing over processes. Yeah. And in the case of, of, of some parts of Belfast, I, I still remember seeing the, um, the graffiti on the walls, whether, whether it's a unionist or, yeah. or a, a nationalist neighborhood, where you have these high walls to keep the two sides separate. But even in that case, of course, you know that there's the other side. Yeah. And so that there will be situations where people will, in, in a sense, either physically or in other ways, cross over by climbing the wall. Mm. And so in that sense, if what you see happening now with, with the southern wall of, of, of Trump in the very process of trying to, to close off the U.S. From, from Mexico, you're now finding to his chagrin that they're finding all kinds of ways of actually using the, the borders to be able to cross over so that they're able to saw through some of them, have the new ladders. So in a way, I think that this is the dynamic of, of, of borders and also of legal ordering as a, as a process. Yeah, um, uh, and you know, on that point of that, that borders not only separate but also join. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. it reminds me yesterday that something you said about systems theory and and the limits of systems yeah. theory. I don't want to get into systems theory, yeah. <laughs> denigrate into that topic, but sometimes I, I see such um, correspondence between yep. your work and actually that yeah. kind of you know form of yeah. systems theory and. Um, uh, uh, Spencer Brown and stuff, but what I wanted, what I wanted to come back is something that really interests me: is this concept of law, um, the spatial, the temporal, subjective, and content. Mm-hmm. And as you said, uh, you know, who ought, uh, or I think you framed it as who what ought to do, what, where, what, and when. It's who ought to do what, where, what, when. where, when. I think yeah. that's fantastic, and it's such a comprehensive uh, mapping out of a normative order in a sense, yeah. um, and really brings to the fore, you know, not just this important aspect of the temporal, and, and but also the spatial, mm-hmm. which I think has been overlooked. Um, but I wanted to ask about, there's another element in that, uh, which is maybe a little bit in the background, which could be brought out, and that's the ought, mm-hmm. this quality of the yeah. ought. Yeah. And I was had a question, you know, when you were talking yesterday, well, where's what's the quality of that ought there mm-hmm. and where's it located? And I think that the answer that came to me as you continued to speak was it's located in this way, in a sense. And mm-hmm. uh, it's a really a constitutional question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, but I, I was wondering, is there is there do you see that there's a necessity uh, or even a value in interrogating that ought a little further on mm-hmm. a more elemental social basis mm-hmm. and, you know, asking what the quality of that ought is? Yeah, yeah. that's a terrific question. Um, let me, let me, let me. I think the best way to to dis- to uh, approach the question is by first illustrating how the ought becomes visible, as it were, and then and then discussing what it could mean. 
normatively. So let me let me just re recreate the, the opening introductory paragraphs of the earlier book in which I discussed boundaries, fault lines of globalization. And it was an incident uh, that I that, that my partner and I uh, were witness to in a, in a restaurant in a town called Breda, not so far from Tilburg. So it was a it was a it was a Friday evening. We were having a dinner. It was a marvelous uh, ambiance. Everyone was just really enjoying themselves. And at a certain point in time, uh, a, a tramp, a clochard, as the French would put it, walked in. And uh, he was a big burly guy. And it was obvious he hadn't bathed for quite a while. And he made, his, made a beeline to the, uh, to the chief waiter and said in a loud voice that he wanted a dinner. And it was obvious he would brook no nonsense. He would not be pushed out by these people. If he was going to be pushed out, he would have to be pushed out by the police. And he was not prepared to pay. So there was sort of pall settled over the room. You could see that uh, people were getting quite concerned, so did we. Silence while, you while the guy figured out the waiter what he was doing. You could see his brain churning like mad. And what he did was seat the, the, the clochard at a table which was closest to the kitchen door. It happened to be the, door, the, the, the table next to ours. And told him, sure, you'll get a, a, a free meal. Uh, and um, at that point then the ambiance returned. Everyone was relaxed again. And then when the meal was brought to the guy, something that was literally extra hyphen ordinary happened. Extra ordinary. And that was with a cherubic smile, he invited the waiter to share the meal with him. Now, the, the waiter became actually physically disorganized. He, didn't, he fidgeted. He didn't know how to deal with the situation. He ended up bowing courteously and scuttling back, as it were, to the kitchen. Now, what was fascinating about that there? It, it, it was for me like what the Germans would call an aha erleibnis, sort of, a, aha, this is, this is what it's about. We are so accustomed to thinking about law as rules, as I said. But what we don't imagine or don't usually think about is that what law does is to define who ought to do what, where, and when. And so that um, when you enter a restaurant, you in principle take on, as it were, the role of a client and so crossing the door of the restaurant takes you, from the, takes you from the sidewalk into a specific kind of legal place, a restaurant. And it's a place where there are sub-places. So you will walk in, there will be the foyer, there will be the places, there will be the kitchen, there will be the, the, the dining room itself, the tables. So that it, it sets out places within a larger uh, place, which is a restaurant, which itself part of a larger unity of places. So that restaurant is part of the city of Breda, which is part of the province of North Brabant, where I live, which is part of the kingdom of the Netherlands. And, and, and on you go. Now, what was interesting is, therefore, that when he was coming in, um, he, was, he was actually calling into question the way the legal order structure, space, time, subjectivities, and act contents. Because if you walk into a restaurant, what the law expects you to do, speaking of normative expectations, which is one of your topics, is that it expects you to behave like a client, which means that you will come in, you will wait to be seated, you will ask for the menu, you will order your meal, you'll eat it, you'll pay for it, and you'll leave. So look, there is already a process of law as structuring space, time, not merely in the sense of, of calendar time, like you entered at 8.05, as it were. No. What law does is structure time in the sense of settle what it is that the future should bring. So the future should bring that you first enter, then you sit down, then you eat, then you pay, then you leave. So law structures time. But it structures space also because, in principle, that is a specific ought place. You ought to eat a meal 
in that place, but it also structures subjectivities. If you enter that place, you're a client. And therefore, if you're a client, you're also supposed to behave in certain ways. And so what was fascinating about what the guy did was that on the one hand, arguably, what he was doing was illegal. It was extortion. He was banking on the fact that if he was going to be pushed out by the police, basically the whole evening would be ruined for everyone. That's bad, bad news for the restaurant. So that he was actually using that as leverage to get a free meal. Illegal. But at the same time, what he was doing was calling into question the very ways in which law structures space, time, subjectivity, and act contents. And so in a, what was he, where is that ought moment to come back to what you're saying? In a certain sense, what was for me marvelous in what happened there, in that cherubic smile when he invited the waiter to sit down, is that what became clear is that, as it were, when you walk into a restaurant, you take for granted that you ought to pay for the meal once you sit down and order it. And what this guy was suddenly doing was pointing to another understanding of an ought you do not necessarily have to pay for the meal. You can imagine other ways of living in common. And that's what the ought is about. I think that what the ought is about is that in the process of laying out space, time, subjectivities, and act contents, what the law is saying is this is who we are about, and that we then is a reference to a commonality, a common way of life. And so what the, what, what the ought articulates who ought to do what, where, and when, is basically an understanding of what it is that holds us together as a collective. And what this guy was doing was in fact showing us that there was another way of trying to understand what it might be to have life in common. That what, what, who we are as, as a collective could be imagined in other ways than what we had taken for granted. Right. That's a that's fascinating example. I think it's a it's a, it's an interesting uh, study on Parsonian sort of double contingencies and how uh, you know society regulates uh, expectations of expectations, how we know yeah. how to trust each yeah. other essentially, yeah. which is kind of what Robert was getting yeah. at yesterday yeah. with the yeah. blockchain thing. Um, and I, what it, you, what you've said is it makes me think that you know, in, in a sense, we're looking at the same thing from our different aspects of the same thing mm -hmm. um, and in terms of w the ought and its its placement and in, in this framework of a spatial and content and subjective uh, and the temporal um, but you can also I think maybe inquire further and say and I, I think that this is my interest is but is in almost a more what I mean by a more elemental level is the border between the psychological and the, the social in terms mm -hmm. of law uh, mm -hmm. in that sense. And you could kind of question what was the kind of expectation that the the vagrant had, you know, because, as you said, he came into the restaurant and he knew that he was he was going to put people in an uncomfortable position. And because of that uh, tactic that they he would maybe get a free meal of it mm -hmm. and even played around with it where he invited the head waiter to mm -hmm. sit down. Mm -hmm. um, but he must have had a to go back to my favorite distinction, he must have had a cognitive expectation that he would have that result. Uh, he was playing with a normative order and this kind of odd sort of character. But if the head waiter had have uh, been maybe, you know, a bit more uh, robust and sh uh, shoot him out of the restaurant mm -hmm. or called the police mm -hmm. or something, he would have learned to deal with that disappointment of his expectation in a way. Mm -hmm. So you could almost say that his his expectation is not normative in that sense. Mm -hmm. 
in the sense that it wasn't counterfactual. It wasn't yeah. something he was going to yeah. hang on and say, I demand yeah. a free meal. I have I get, a right I to a free mean. meal. Yeah, I would certainly agree. Uh, I think that nothing of what I'm saying is that in, 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 uh, presupposes that he was actually out to produce this effect. Um, in a sense, that is to say, there is no um, independent position from which you can uh, uh, define whether that he, he was acting with a normative intent or not, or whether it was, as you would call it, cognitive. I would simply say that my partner and I saw that. And for us, it was clear that he was opening up the possibility of another way of, 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 of living together, even if only ephemerally. But it may very well have been the case that he was simply just a you know, blunt part of that proverbial Dutch bluntness, which you have whether you're a vagrant or whether you're an <laughs> academic. And so he just walked in and said, well, you know, I just want a meal. And if he'd been pushed out, he would have accepted it. Yeah. So it's, it's not even necessarily that he was um, actively, actively engaging in an act of what we would want to call civil disobedience. Right. Yeah. It was maybe simply that that, that, that happened in that way, but yeah. for those who presence it, also, it's not necessarily the case that everyone would see it in the same way. That's the way we saw it. But maybe other people would say, well, you know, the guy should have been pushed out and kicked out, you know, and just, you know, keep away and yeah. just uh, let us have our meal. You, you're a vagrant. Yeah. So there is no, um, there is no, as it were, independent position from which you can define what will count as normativity and what will not count. That's, that's it's in the thick of things mm. that, that this process takes place. And as far as I'm concerned, um, the, these kinds of, of disruptions of order, which will always involve both descriptive and prescriptive dimensions, both to your, your language, cognitive and normative, are not limited to human beings. Uh, my partner is a, is, a, is a radical vegan. And we were once out biking out in the vicinities of Tilburg in the, in, in the farmlands. And then suddenly she burst into tears. I said, what happened? And she said, look, and there was a, there was a, there was a barn and there was a, a cow, and they had separated the calf from the cow, which was in front of the herd. And you could see, and the calf and the cow were looking at each other. And you could see, I could for the first time see that the calf and the cow were, wanted to be together and had been separated through the agro-industrial system. And so my partner could actually see that also and feel a, a, a sense of grief, but also fury at a system that allows that. I mean, she speaks about agro-industry in the Netherlands as, as a modern form of Auschwitz. Mm. And so what I would want to say is that there, uh, my partner was helping me, she showed me something that disrupted what I took as being the ought, and yet it's not part of the human domain. Mm. And you could also imagine that part of what's happening now with climate change, which is not necessarily itself human, in terms of, of, of course, it has human, a great deal of human causes, but it's not itself necessarily a human event. That that can also be disruptive in terms of what counts as ought. The very idea that we can grant rights to animals, that we can imagine that we have to reconstitute what we call a collective, such that we would involve non-humans in part of the notion of a we, it suggests that... Um, that the notion of intentionality in its conventional psychological sense is not a, a key issue to try to make sense of how normativity emerges and how it can be disrupted. Mm. Yeah, um, I, I, you mentioned uh, civil disobedience, and I, I want to come back to that because I know that that's been an important element to your work as well. And, but um, I think 
just to go back to that uh, example of, of the vagrant who comes into the restaurant, you know, um, and intentionality maybe not, uh, and maybe being something that's remote and different from this uh, this normative order. But in a sense, they are both connected still because, you know, as you said, that he, he could he can't really go into that restaurant and say, listen, I, I have a right uh, because he knows that there's no normative order. There's no social structure there to support that. Yeah. So the intentions are al- always looking or keyed in or connected with the existing normative order, the existing social structure in that way. And that's what's interesting about uh, uh, examples of civil disobedience. Those yeah. are successful expectations. Those are expectations that that do catch on and that do have a kind of normative order to feed into in that yeah, sense. So yeah. and they are the emergence of that mm-hmm, in, in mm-hmm. that sense. Yeah. And that brings me to to what I wanted to ask you about your concept of a uh, illegality and yeah. and this calling into question the normative order. Typically, as lawyers, we we manage the distinction between legality and illegality. And uh, we structure reality in terms of uh, of behavior and situations which we view as legal or as illegal. There, I think phenomenology and systems theory go down the same down the same path. It's a specific way of of, of the law of approaching reality and structuring it, and and uh, uh, dealing with expectations about how reality will present itself into the future. Now, um, what I would want to say is that. Um, if legality and illegality are the way in which uh, order and disorder, respectively, register in the law, what I call illegality uh, refers to those forms of behavior or those situations which call into question the very distinction itself as how it's drawn by the legal order. Now, um, a, an example of, of civil disobedience that, that might, uh, that might uh, explain that would be those kinds of situations, for example, in an Occupy movement, um, where what you do is you sit down somewhere and uh, basically impede traffic as a way of calling attention to a dimension of, of, uh, of social life which you think that ought to be transformed and that which, which can be transformed with, by the system, within the system itself. Uh, and so that's what I would call the, the experience of a boundary as being a limit of the legal order. There's an outside... Uh, there is a reference to uh, another order that is being uh, anticipated or intimated through the uh, act of civil disobedience, but in principle a manifestation of, of another order that can be integrated into the order and transform the order. To that extent, I think that the notion of illegality involves and includes uh, civil disobedience. But if you look at the definitions of civil disobedience which are out there, and those are, for example, roles. Uh, being more obvious, most obviously the case for Dworkin, it's clear that in both cases, and generally speaking also Philip Pettit, uh, what's at stake is the idea that it's a form of, um, of resistance to the extant order in a way that retains loyalty to the system. That you want, you think that the system has, is, is not authentic in the sense that it has not met up to its own aspirations and that you engage in an act of civil disobedience such that the system becomes more congruent with its own deep uh, ideational and ideal uh, uh, attachments. Now, that's part of what I call illegality. But illegality goes further than that. Uh, illegality also involves situations of resistance 
that basically involve no allegiance to that order whatsoever. And so when I look at the case we discussed yesterday, the case of the, Abri of the Aboriginal tent embassy in the lawns of, of, in front of Old Parliament House in Canberra. Now, initially, when they pitched the tent, the justification was, well, if the McMahon government views us as aliens in our, in, in our lands, then we will have to set up an embassy, which is, of course, in a certain sense, uh, odd, strange, because if they are Australians, how can they possibly um, accept uh, setting up an embassy. Now, in a first set, in a first, uh, in a first movement, uh, they uh, asked for other land rights than what was being offered on, to them by the McMahon government. But with time, they became more radical. And with time, what they ended up asking for was basically sovereignty, Aboriginal sovereignty vis-a-vis -vis Australia. So, in a sense, secession. Uh, or just kicking out all non-Aboriginals from Australia. Now, you could imagine that the uh, McMahon government would have offered them the land rights that they expected initially. But what you could not, what would not work, is for the Australian government to give them secession or, or give, grant them sovereignty and at the same time remain part of Australia. So theirs is not, theirs is not strictly speaking an act of civil disobedience, because if civil disobedience implies loyalty to the order which you are contesting. Basically, their act was to say, look, I don't belong to this order at all. My act is one that seeks to take me out of that order completely. And so in that sense, uh, what I call illegality would involve both civil disobedience, but would try to account for these kinds of more radical manifestations of resistance to legal orders. Yeah. What's interesting about the the Aboriginal example and the tent embassy is the, the location that they chose to pitch that tent, it mm -hmm. was right across from uh, <laughs> the House of Government. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. So in a sense, uh, yeah, they were, you know, it's an it's a more radical form of illegality. Yeah. But of course, where do they stage their protest? Uh, yeah. So uh, let me put it this way. So it's not it's not merely a question of that. They, they are disengaging themselves completely from the legal order that they chose. That place has uh, is, of course, extremely symbolic in the sense that they are directly contesting the, 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 the source of, of, of government, parliament. I mean, that's the representation of the people. And so at the same time, they are recognizing the Australian government and, and, and Australia as, as, as a collective by pitching their tent there. And at the same time saying, well, but we don't want to belong. And so in that sense, when I speak about illegality, I don't mean about something that is entirely removed from a legal order. I mean, uh, speak to something that with the, which is both inside and outside that legal order. And you have different variations of that inside and outside. But if it were only outside, then it would be like two ships passing each other in the dark. You wouldn't mm. even be aware of that, that there being an outside. <laughs> so that there can only be resistance in a certain sense, which is already within, right. and that there is an element of recognition of the other. But at the same time, it can be the case that there are forms of, of resistance that are not asking for inclusion that are asking for exclusion. So my point yesterday is that so much of political theory, certainly liberal political theory, has focused, in many ways rightly, how can we assure a more inclusive society, a collective? But that's not necessarily the only way in which you can say, not in my name. Another way of saying not in my name is, I want out, which means that sometimes inclusion is a problem rather than the solution to the problem. 
And, and just to address that other form of illegality, you talked about uh, civil disobedience in the sense of uh, this this claim that the, that the legal system must become more congruent mm-hmm. with these so far outside claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, would the American civil rights movement be an example of that, for example, you know, as, as something that was seeking to change the legal system and was always, you know, uh, petitioning the Supreme Court and, you know... Yeah. Well, I think that certainly um, if you read the, the, the interpretations of, say, Bruce Ackerman, or if you read uh, a, a dear friend of mine's work, uh, Alessandro Ferrara, uh, on, on the American civil rights movement, that would be very definitely an attempt to try to make sense of, um, of the civil rights movement as, as one of civil disobedience oriented to obtaining situations of equality within the U.S., as, as, as a republic. Um, what was interesting is that if you look, read Bruce Ackerman's story about, about the, the emergency of the American Constitution, there is an explicit reference to the fact that um, at the time of foundation, the, and he always refers to foundation with a capital F and to the founders with capital F, um, there, were, there was an act of exclu- exclusion. Uh, women were excluded, uh, blacks were excluded, and, Ameri- and Native Americans were excluded. Uh, and uh, and so basically what they say is, look, what, what Ackerman says, we have seen through the civil rights movement and through the gen, uh, fem, uh, feminist movement a relative parity or equality emerging, even if to some extent it's still only formal, between blacks, whites, uh, females, males. But he has very little to say about, about uh, Native Americans. Now, I'm sure that Bruce Ackerman would be the first one to say that uh, the injustice which has been done to uh, to in, uh, American uh, or to Indians, Native Americans, is uh, is one of that needs to be redressed, and that therefore there would need to be a further sort of civil rights movement which would be oriented toward Native Americans. Um, but of course, to a certain extent, that is, as I say, part of the idea that what's at stake here is a greater inclusiveness. But as it happens, there is one branch of the Sioux. Indians that in the 80s decided to break with the U.S. government and to suspend the treaties that were the place in Fort Laramie. And basically they wanted to secede. Now, of course, the chances of secession as a factual issue were nil. Uh, But basically what these people were complaining about is that by recognizing them as Native Americans and granting them all the rights that they would have had if they were white or whatever, Basically, they were being misrecognized because they view themselves as natives, but not as Americans. So the very expression Native American is not a form of recognition, it's a form of misrecognition. And so there's a radical sense of, um, of wanting out, uh, which it seems to me is, is blindsides uh, uh, the kinds of approaches that Bruce Ackerman has on offer in terms of um, civil disobedience and raises tough, really tough normative questions. So, for example, okay, uh, does it mean merely that they want out? No, because what they were asking for was to be treated, basically, to be recognized as a sovereign nation on a par with the U.S. or whatever other nation. Now, imagine that the U.S. had granted them that sovereignty. Improbably, but let's suppose that it had happened. So you would say that there was then a situation of mutual recognition between the U.S. and the Sioux as a distinct uh, uh, nations, sovereign nations, under international law. Would that have solved the predicament? Yes and no. On the one hand, the, the Sioux, the, that's what the Sioux were asking for. And so clearly for them, or that 
part of the Sioux uh, set of peoples, um, for them clearly becoming a, a sovereign nation state offered significant advantages to the situation of being in, in a, in a, in a, on a reservation. But, of course, it's not merely a question of becoming a state. You become, you take on all the trappings of a state, the military dimension of it, the notion of sovereignty. You take everything on board which, which is involved in international law under the notion of, of a state. And so that's, that is something not, that is not necessarily congruent with how they understand themselves as, being a, as, as, as an indigenous collective. Mm. So that what you get is an equalization of the Sioux with the U.S. as sovereign nations, but also sort of self-inequalization where the Sioux become perhaps other other than what they would actually want to be mm -hmm. if they had their druthers. Right. So there's no possibility of... So your, so your question is whether... So there's no hope. So, um, no, that's, that's not at all what I would want to say. What I would want to say is that um, there is a dimension of recognition which can be granted under these kinds of radical situations by the U.S. government. You could imagine, even if it's factually improbable and given the, certainly the contemporary political constellation of the U.S., it's very difficult to imagine that they would actually accept such, such, such a thing as a secession. Uh, and international law itself, of course, makes secession incredibly difficult to protect the integrity of states. And therefore, to that extent, also to protect the integrity of a post-colonial situation, which entrenches colonialism. What I would want to say is that um, the way I understand processes of recognition is that it does involve recognition of the other uh, in ourselves as one of us, and therefore allows for processes of inclusion. But it also there has to be a recognition of the other as other than us. Now, what that would mean concretely in this case is, okay, in an act of considerable political courage. Imagine that the U.S. were to grant them secession. That doesn't mean that uh, what has emerged through that process is a return to a situation prior to the colonization. That there will be wounds that remain and that there is an outside that is not, that is not as it were, brought within the legal order. And that therefore there is there's still something to be done in terms of redress uh, and that if, if the U.S. were to accept that uh, the Sioux were an independent nation, you would, of course, have relationships of economic domination, because what would the Sioux sovereign state do and be able to do in, with that large neighbor? If we in Latin America have always felt <laughs> the <Yeah>. U.S. <laughs> as, uh, as the, and yeah. uh, we've always been depicted as the back backyard of the yeah. U.S., what would it be like for the Sioux, uh, Sioux nation? So that by saying... That, that there is a dimension there that of, of, of otherness, of alterity, which still remains unrecognized and misrecognized, then that takes the U.S. out of its comfort zone. Because if it, had simply, if it simply accepts that the Sioux now are a nation state, then it can engage with them as a nation state under conditions of domination. So by recognizing that there's, some, there's still a, a, a dimension of misrecognition in the very process of recognizing them mm. as a sovereign state, it means that there is still work to be done infinitely, if you wish, to redress damages which have taken place. So it's, it's a way of trying to avoid political closure by saying that there will always be a dimension of misrecognition in processes of recognition. So to keep the moment of contingency alive, which is at stake in any legal order at any stage of its existence. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering uh, how you view, uh, to take things to a global level, uh, the role of a legality and both of these senses. Uh, what's the role of a legality now 
in to the global no- normative order and, and specifically I'm thinking about social movements and we talked briefly before about Greta Thunberg and yeah. uh, what she represents in this mm-hmm. respect. Is this yeah. a form of illegality and, and what are the chances of success in that yeah. respect? Yeah, yeah, I would definitely say that. I mean, you sh- what's fascinating about globalization processes is that uh, the reference to uh, to globalization seems to suggest something like being able to speak on behalf of humanity, that it's a legal order that uh, seeks to um, encompass all of humanity, even if it's a sliver of it, say the WTO. Um, it also speak, claims to speak on behalf of humanity by claiming that free global trade is, uh, is to the benefit of everyone. And to that extent that if we were to lower tariffs, if we were to deal with, uh, with the kinds of obstacles which are thrown up by states, to interstate trade, and we were able to create finally a, a free global market, that that would be to everyone's benefit. Now, of course, what's become clear is that that very process of creating a global market um, is a process that is not only a process of inclusion, but also of exclusion. And not merely because you have some powerful players, but because you have to take a decision about what we understand as being a free global market, what we, humanity, call free trade. And there's not necessarily an agreement about that. In fact, there's violent disagreement about what counts as humanity in terms of free trade. And so that um, in the very process of claiming to include us all, globalization processes also exclude. And what you see emerging is at least two different ways of making that visible. On the one hand, you have what I would call alter globalization movements. And I would claim that uh, Greta Thunberg and the whole uh, movement which is emerging around her as one of its iconic figures is an example of that. Another one would be, for example, the Via Campesina, which is a very large peasant movement. Via Campesina, Spanish for the peasant way. Uh, and it's an attempt to, to articulate uh, an understanding of what globalization could be about from the perspective of, 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 of peasanthood and the idea of, of food sovereignty. Uh, and it, I think it's something about 180 to 200 million peasants in the worldwide. So it's, it's a large movement. These are movements that are not op- opposing globalization as such. They're asking for another globalization. And so the, uh, the famous slogan of the World Social Forum, another world is possible, is I think very much what's, what, what, what is driving these movements. But you also have uh, anti-globalization movements uh, of which I think what we see happening with with Brexit, taking back control, uh, make America great again, uh, Le Pen in uh, France, uh, remettre la France en ordre, re, re, uh, bring uh, uh, France back to its original order, as it were. These are all manifestations of, of a violent opposition to uh, globalization movements as, uh, as being anathema to the possibility of politics and justice. Now, I think that what's interesting in the case of the ultra-globalization movements is that um, some of it has to do with globalization, some of it has to do with the notion of a movement itself. Now, what's interesting about the notion of a movement is, is, is the fact that it is a form of resistance to an ex- extant order. And what you see, for example, happening in the Occupy Wall Street movement and it, I, I spent quite a bit of time studying that movement, is that the, the powers that be uh, were desperately asking the Occupy movement, what is it that you want? Because it was a cacophony 
of different demands and claims. Mm. If you've actually looked at the manifesto, it's something like, you know, it's just an endless stream of things that they want. And in a certain, to a certain extent, if you actually looked carefully at it, some of these things were probably not, couldn't be combined. Mm. And so what was fascinating there is that it was an onslaught of other practical possibilities of living together, which is what a movement is about, when it's still a movement Mm. in such a way that an order wants to try to deal with it, but to deal with it, it has to know what is a question that is being raised and, and it has to respond to. So that they desperately tried to find if there were persons who could actually act as spokespersons for that movement. And uh, quite savvily, actually, Occupy Wall Street never really had these kinds of spokespersons. Because what happens with a spokesperson? You basically have to say what it is that we want we. And therefore, you're already yourself engaging in the process of inclusion and exclusion. And so that's a fascinating process of resistance. Uh, resistance sort of overwhelms an order by showing that there is no dearth of alternative ways of living together. But if it's going to get off the ground and pose a viable alternative to an existent order, you will have to enter the game of representation in the minimal sense of defining what it is that joins us together as a we. And so in that sense, what's interesting about Greta Thunberg is that she has been very clear in trying to show that we have to go another way. She says, go the way, believe the scientists. But if you look at science, science itself is deeply engaged in controversy about, about, uh, about uh, climate change. And not merely the climate change deniers, but within science that agrees that there is climate change and that it is anthropogenic, which way to go? And so that... Um, what fascinates me about social movements is trying to make sense of that passage from resistance, no, to the existence, to a yes, to a yes otherwise, and that yes otherwise that in itself already carries a seed of its own contingencies. Now, as concerns the anti-globalization um, movements, uh, taking back control. Of course, the very notion of taking back control suggests that you return to a situation prior to the situation that there was when you had globalization. But of course, that's not going to happen. Uh, what you see happening now is that basically Britain will be trading in what it views as one form of vassalage for another one. <laughs> I mean, the chlorinated chicken is, and, and NHS are obvious examples of that. And so in a sense, that notion of the back or take make America great again, that speaks to the ray of representation. It's the assumption that you can go back to an original society in its pristine, pure character, and that at that moment, then things would come to rest. But there is no origin that we have direct access to. There is no pristine we. Mm -hmm. And that in the very process of trying to go back to America, Bush, uh, uh, Trump is fundamentally restructuring America in ways that would not have been recognizable for people, to use his latest expression, with Gone with the Wind. He didn't like the <laughs> fact that Parasite had won the Oscar, so yeah. he wanted to have gone back with, you know, Gone with the Wind. That is not an America that most people would be right. able to recognize today as their own. Yeah. So in that sense, my issue with, 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 a, uh, with the anti-globalists is the assumption that there is an original past that we could return to. There isn't. It's interesting. I mean, on the example of Occupy Wall Street, I, I, that also was covered, I think, in one of Adam Curtis's documentaries, Hypernormalization, where he talked about the Occupy movement and they wanted to really maintain this spontaneous character, that there was no hierarchical structure and that that eventually led to them 
not having that representation. Yeah. And that was problematic in some sense of communication as a social movement, what their goals were. I think Time's Up movement has also strived to be spontaneous and non-hierarchical and, and patriarchal in that sense. And and what's interesting is to compare that to Greta Thunberg. And she, maybe not by her own uh, sense, but she has been constructed as a leader of a movement in mm-hmm. a sense. And, you know, and there's an interest in co-option or uh, coupling with the media and science in this respect you know it's the media mm-hmm. that presents mm-hmm. their time person of the year sort of mm-hmm. thing uh, and but what you get is this interest in construct now in the media of, of almost like you know she's invited to davos she's invited to these forums of international policy making yeah. decision making and this kind of construction of her as being the other side to this trumpian Brexit mm-hmm. and the anti-globalist movement, I think, is not just a movement at the moment. It's actually found an institutional seat. It's in yep. the traditional power yep. centers of yep. law and politics. And so it seems like that this is uh, and is that success then as, as a social movement when you have that kind of co-option of, of the media or you can co-op science and claim yep. science in this yep. respect and go for this more organized and representational and yep. hierarchical sort of structure? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's that's a brilliant uh, analysis of yours. Um, yeah, indeed. I mean, by in the same way that what you saw happening with Occupy Wall Street, the, the, the establishment was desperately trying to say, pin down what were the questions and who were the spokespersons. By, uh, by identifying her as the spokesperson uh, for, the, uh, for, for this movement, basically they are um, domesticating assimilating, creating the conditions under which they can respond to that order and giving her institutional position within it. And I think that part of what, what, what might make this movement successful in the sense of moving us away from where we are now would be precisely that she does resist those kinds of, uh, of, of uh, spokesperson uh, status that is foisted onto her. I understand that she actually has on some occasions said, no, I refuse to step up to the podium, let these other people speak. Mm. But of course, these other people are also then become the spokespersons. Mm. So it's it's a dynamic of, of, of how there is a sort of, um, f- to use an expression of a, of a philosopher who is uh, dodgy, but who is a brilliant philosopher, nonetheless, um, uh, Karl Schmidt. He refers to uh, he refers to the notion of um, of the um, of constituent power as the formless forming, and uh, a much less dodgy, very left wing, very very brilliant philosopher called Cornelius Castoriadis speaks of the notion of magma. And in a certain sense, I think that's what's interesting in a social movement is its magmatic character which it's formlessness and, and yet forming character. But of course, to at the end of the day, if politics will be about um, creating a sense of commonality, and if it is a case that commonality will always have its dynamic of inclusion and exclusion, then in a certain sense, it looks like movements are condemned to becoming from ma- magmatic to becoming to a certain extent at least petrified. <laughs> and when you, yes, and when you therefore uh, appoint a spokesperson such as Greta or whoever, then that magmatic moment of resistance tends to become or initiates processes of petrification. No. Well, that brings us back in a nice circle in a way. And I could talk about this all day, Hans, but I'm conscious that you have to make a flight. So yeah. um, 
thanks very much. Well, thanks and, to uh, you. It's yeah, been it's very interesting. And Thank it's you. been f fantastic uh, uh, to, to engage with you and with Luca. And uh, I've actually learned a lot during this interview itself. So oh, thanks. Great. Thanks very much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you so much for listening to LawPod. You've been listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by the Queen's University Law School. Please follow us on Twitter at QUB LawPod and you can learn more about us at lawpod.org. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. This was LawPod.